Welcome back to Christ of the Cure. This is Nick, and I'm your host for today. We're going to continue our discussion on images of Christ. And um, a lot of the foundations for this uh, were placed in episode 168, where we talked about definitions and history. Um, and then today we're going to be talking about the theology, and then my position at the very end. Uh, that all said, it's important to remember that there are uh, distinctions whenever you go deeper into the weeds. On this, such as the distinction between an icon, a statue, just an art representation, um, something to be used in worship, something to not be used in worship, right? So the discussion always goes deeper. It'll it'll even go far beyond what we get to today. So this is a place to get you thinking, to help you work through it yourself, right? And that's kind of where we go from it. And you may leave this not agreeing with me, and that's fine. Um, I was actually doing some more reading on the history. Um, I was listening to some of the stuff by R.C. Sproul because he's one of the Reformed adherents who uh, believes that art is permissible. And um, I'll link a video series um, in the description of this called Recovering the Beauty of the Arts. And he has images where he discusses this a little bit as well. So as a brief recap into the last episode... We discussed the history, and then we laid out the arguments for and against icons. Now, those against icons um, would say that the second commandment prohibits and rejects all man-made religious icons or images. Only proper images of Christ uh, for that position back then, at least, would be um, communion and the cross, not a crucifix. To remind you, the crucifix is the cross with Jesus on it. The cross is just a cross. Um, additionally, those who were against images would say that the incarnation did not allow for depictions of Christ in the images, uh, because only Christ is the image of God. They would argue that the picture could only depict his human nature and not his divine nature. And so it doesn't depict Christ properly and it robs him of deity. And this would of course be a manifestation of a type of Nestorianism, right? Where the heresy, where the deity of Christ was downplayed. They would also argue that there are was not any theology set forth by the church fathers, and um, those in favor of images would say that the second commandment forbids the making of pagan icons or false gods. Um, they would also argue that graven images were different from icons because they were not statues, but rather paintings, uh, and that, dis- that debate still happens between Eastern Orthodoxy and Roman Catholicism. Um, they additionally pointed out that God sanctioned many icons in the Old Testament, such as the cherubim, over the Ark of the Covenant and those on the tabernacle curtain, the pomegranates woven on the high priest's robe, uh, the cherubim in the inner sanctuary of the temple, carved figures of the temple uh, on the walls and the doors, and then you have the 12 bronze oxen um, along with lions, cherubim in the temple court, and the bronze serpent that we're all familiar with from Moses' era. They also noted that the Ark of the Covenant was a symbol of Christ um, that was decorated right and they argued that they did not worship the icon, but gave honor to it. 
Um, the Second Council of Nicaea said that believers give Christ worship and veneration to icons and that honor or reverence, veneration, however you want to coin that term. And then they also argued that the incarnation made a picture of God possible because he was a real man and that those who denied images undermined the true humanity of Jesus, thus leading them into a type of Gnosticism known as Docetism. Uh, they further argue that no picture could portray the nature of God as it is invisible, but that an image of Christ as the divine person who was in human form in the incarnation could be depicted. Since Jesus was in human form, um, the picture did not deny the divine nature of Christ, since the, the divine nature cannot be depicted regardless. Um, additionally, those in favor for icons argue that um, they were useful for education, and that just as someone would paint a picture via words from the preaching of the word, um, so would an icon um, with the same effect. So that's essentially the arguments for and against. Now, we can't start this discussion without talking about the Ten Commandments, because the Second Commandment is the starting point. Um, now, the Ten Commandments, or rather the Ten Words, uh, have a little bit of baggage attached to them that we need to get past. Sometimes you'll hear this as an apologetic, and I know that you'll hear this as an apologetic, because I used to use it, unfortunately. But you'll hear something said like, the Roman Catholics knew that idols and images were wrong, and that's why they changed the Ten Commandments. And why do people say that? Well, because the, the commandment to have no icons or images is removed from their short version of the Ten Commandments, but it's not removed. Um, so we're going to talk about that for a second. The reality is that they didn't change the Ten Commandments, but rather they are structured differently, and there are three different ways to interpret the structure and numbering of the Ten Commandments. And the differences lie between the Catholic and the Lutheran version, the Protestant version that excludes Lutherans, obviously, and then the Jewish version. Now, these obviously ripple down to whenever you get to 9 to 10, but we're going to focus on the first two and three. So the Catholic and Lutheran Ten Commandments is structured as one, I am the Lord your God, you shall have no strange gods before me. And then it also includes images. And then two, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. Now the Protestant version, which you are most likely more familiar with, is one, you shall have no other gods before me. Two, you shall not make any graven images. And three, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. The Jewish version begins with one being, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of slavery in Egypt. And then two, you shall have no other gods but me. And three, you shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God. But notice that two also includes images here, um, like the Catholic Lutheran version, but one is different, so it shifts down. So the difference between the Protestant and the Jewish and Catholic Lutheran on this particular idea of images and icons is that the Protestant breaks up no other gods and images into two different commandments, while the Catholic, Lutheran, and Jewish put them together in one. You shall have no other gods but me, and shall not make any images. So those are one commandment in these versions. Um, so the debate stems from the Hebrew text, um, and it also stems from the republication of this list in Deuteronomy 5, 6 through 21, which has some variation from the text in Exodus 20 that we're used to going to. So there are plenty of works and debates you can look at if you want to look deeper into this. Two examples would be Daniel Block's uh, reading the Decalogue right to left and Jason DeRouchy's um, A Call to Covenant Love. Now, the Protestant version is usually assumed, and I really didn't find a lot of articles that 
you know, debated for that particular version. I'm sure there are some, so you may have to dig for that. Um, but, I mean, even the structure in our modern Bibles usually reflect the Protestant view here. Um, so while there are those other differences, I, I recommend you research for yourself. I, I really wanted to note specifically that if you're coming to this discussion about images and idols and you want to say that Lutherans and Catholics or even Jewish folk, which would be kind of weird knowing the history of how Jews understood images, um, somehow remove the commandment to justify their practice, just know that that's incorrect. Now, from my research on this particular issue, I've been leaning more towards the Lutheran view of the Decalogue here, uh, based off Daniel Block and um, Wellam and Gentry and Kingdom Through Covenant actually discuss and defend this particular structure. Um, and so that's where I land currently, but I still need to look into that a little bit more. Now, Protestants can often agree that the second command centers around idolatry, but this structure actually does become important because if the images clause is just intrinsically linked with you shall have no other gods before me, this not only makes more sense culturally and historically, but it keeps the issue of idolatry and worship front and center rather than just making images on their own, right? Because we can read the second commandment in the Protestant tradition and say, well, this is about worship and images and uh, worshiping false gods. But what I've seen quite often, actually, is that when discussing this topic, that images and worship get separated. And it's, no, you can't have images because that's just what the second commandment says. It's not so much about the worship about the image, even though we know that they're linked, right? But that's often how it's kind of juggled. And so that is important and can affect the discussion, I think. Um, hopefully that made sense. So that said, as long as the discussion remains on the fact that this is about idols equaling gods and idols are forbidden um, as they are false gods and they shouldn't be worshipped, then ground can be made on this discussion. Um, and... I think that whenever you take that weird separation of images and worship in this context of the Decalogue and you run with it, then things become pretty strange whenever you start getting to the fact that there are artistic representations in the temple on the Ark of the Covenant commanded by God, right? Um, so anyway, Exodus 24 says, You shall not make for yourself an image and form that is in heaven above, and that is in the earth below, that is in the waters under earth. Now, back to Kingdom Through Covenant, Gingery and Wellam note that in classical Jewish and Muslim traditions, this command led to the prohibition of the representation of any living creature. Christian interpretation up to the 19th century was dominated by the idea that since God was invisible and transcendent, he could not be contained in an image. Others have spiritualized the text, reducing idols to anything to which we devout our energy money, and worth as a deity. Now, to that, there really is a play. They, they note that um, these conceptions neglect the historic context of Exodus, and so we're going to talk about that for a second here. We talked a little bit about this before, but we're going to retouch it, and then we'll read from Daniel Block, actually. So first off, utilizing the work of Walton, who is quoted in Kingdom Through Covenant, um, what is an idol? Well, an idol is a physical or material image or form that represents a being considered divine and acts as a mediator for worship. Um, according to Dr. Walton, 
Ancient Near East ideas of idols are classified in three ways. The manufacturing of the idol, the use of the idol, and the perception of the function and the nature of the idol. So within the Near East, the ancient Near East, only the god could approve um, and begin the manufacturing process of an idol. Ceremonies and rituals would follow so that the god could inhabit the image, allowing the image to function as a mediator and receive its tribute. Um, the idol would be the center of worship in all formal and public worship and was used as the mediator of revelation to the people. Additionally, the idol was seen as a mediator of the people's worship to the idol's respective deity. The idol was not seen as just a representation of a given deity, but also the manifestation of the deity's presence as the idol was understood to be animated by the deity's essence. So to make an idol would be to have the the deity commission, if you will, this idol, and then have this idol be the deity in essence that you would have as a mediator between the God and the human. So the function is completely different than just a mere image or a picture of something, right? Um, It acts as the way to worship the deity. In fact, it actually acts as the deity. Um, It's basically manufacturing a God because the essence of the deity inhabited the image. Now, Daniel Block elaborates on this too as well. He says, The process by which the ordinary piece of wood or stone was transformed into an idol, animated by the spirit of the god it represented, proceeded as follows. First, artisans were carefully chosen and ritually consecrated, preparing them to enter the temple workshop where statues of gods and other sacred objects were made and animated. Second, the artisans crafted the image using materials available, wood, stone, clay, metal, bone, etc. Three, Um, Through special rites of divination, a day or month was chosen for the quote-unquote birth of the god. Four, by special incantations and a ritual referred to as the opening of the mouth or the washing of the mouth, the god was born. That is, a physical object was transformed into a living representation of the deity, capable of smelling incense, drinking water, eating food, hearing prayers, and speaking words of reassurance or hope. Next, Special rituals were performed to disassociate images from the human hands that made them, reinforcing the conviction that they were indeed divine creations. The artisans denied under oath that they had made the images, affirmed that they had been made by the craft deities, and had their hands cut off. The tools used to make these images were returned to the craft god by wrapping them in the carcass of a sheep and throwing them into a river. Next, the gods were installed in the Holy of Holies, quote-unquote, which were used as their official residences. Next, to ensure the gods' favorable disposition towards the worshipers, priests were appointed to care for the deity's material needs, which include um, animal and vegetarian sacrifices to satisfy their appetites and incense uh, to be used as a soothing aroma. And the cult statues were regularly bathed and dressed in fine garments, put to bed and treated to festivities and musical entertainment. Daniel Block notes that um, this list comes from several ancient texts of of Assyrians explaining how a physical object was thought to become a god. And so these images, and this is, by the way, Daniel Block, um, For the Glory of God, Recovering the Biblical Theology of Worship. And to be honest, I read this by recommendation um, as I was studying this, and... uh, I cannot find Daniel Block's official position on the Images of Christ debate. Uh, But that was uh, his section on idols in the Second Commandment, minimally, 
which again just brings about the idea that in the second commandment or the first commandment, whichever position you take on that, this is saying you don't build a god and you don't worship this object as a god. So at this point, I would argue that it's very different than artistic representations. Now, whenever we get to what the Seventh Ecumenical Council of Nicaea put forward, um, you could still say that this is not what is being spoken of in this commandment because the the council said that what was honored was the thing behind the image, not the image itself. While in this context, it is the image that is acting as a deity. So at this point, I would say I would agree with Robert Lethem's assessment. Now, Robert Lethem is a reformed individual who wrote a book on Eastern Orthodoxy called Through Western Eyes, A Reformed Perspective. And it's really just well done. But but the whole point is that he says, you know, we have to be fair about this. We can't say, hey, these guys are worshiping these icons. No, they're not. But he also does caution and say it could be really easy to slip into that, right? Especially within the context of worship. And so how I view that ultimately at the end will be revealed, I guess, at the end of this episode. But that's a point worth bringing up. I think that um, I would pick the side of Robert Lethem on. So back to the the discussion. So those in favor of images would say that the classical understanding of the text where you can't make images uh, makes little sense um, because it does forbid the making of any image on heaven and on earth. But almost immediately after within the tabernacle and in Solomon's temple, uh, we find artwork uh, images of bulls, that's you know something on earth, uh, cherubim, something in heaven, lions, earth, palm trees, and pomegranates, and, and you can keep going on. It's 1 Kings 7, 18, 25, 36. Um, and so we see that playing out, where if this commandment is forbidding wholesale the making of any images of X, Y, and Z, yet immediately after it's commanded to make X, Y, and Z, then you have a problem. Um, So there can be a much larger discussion about the Hebrew text and its grammar. But my point here is that the historical context are along with idolatry and other texts where images are not only fashioned, but commanded to be fashioned, that the typical classical uh, Jewish or Muslim understanding are incorrect. Now, Kingdom Through Covenant summarizes as follows. He says, accurate exegesis of commandment uh, 1b, that would be the second commandment in their book, then shows that this text has nothing to do with art or the representation of aspects of the created order with images. Rather, the command has to do with images used as mediators of the presence or revelation of deity from God to human or the mediation of the worship of people to the deity. And so that's where I would land on that. Now, the Lutheran view, and I'll link an article by Jordan Cooper, um, is basically neither extreme, if you want to call them extremes, where they use images but they're not venerated. They're just educational um, bolsters of faith, of his, of realities that happened, right? Um, that's the best way I can put it. Um, and I think that's really all of the notes I have before I just give you my thoughts, which really aren't going to be too long. But anyway, my overall thoughts, right? And again, there's so much more that could be said here. I believe that artistic representations of Jesus are fine. Um, And I'll talk a little bit about some of the concerns that those who are against images of Christ would put forward outside of what has been presented thus far, like how they, how they navigated nowadays. Um, I do think that whenever we talk about 
not having images of Christ, it does become a little docetic, where Jesus didn't really have a human body that could be depicted in. We all know what humans look like. We can depict a human. But then the argument would be, well, well, we don't know what Jesus looked like physically. Well, we know he looked like a, a Jew, right? Um, it's really, it's no consequence because we know that we're not looking at the actual Jesus. We know that whenever we see European Jesus or the African depictions of Jesus or name a depiction of Jesus, we know that we're not seeing Jesus. Like, I think I think it's giving these images too much credit to say that we think that that's what Jesus looked like. Um, we know. It's just a way for us to reflect on the reality of the incarnation as the church has viewed images of Christ historically. So backing up, I would say that between the incarnation, the fact that um, deity could be manifested in so much that deity took on a human nature is significant. Jesus in Colossians 1.15, I believe, is called the icon of God, right? Um, and so whenever we look at that and we look at the way that the, the Bible was originally communicated verbally to pictorial people and then the historical context of the Second Commandment, uh, then you look at the church and how they treated um, images and icons, and you can go back and forth for days on everything that happened before the ecumenical council. But then you have the ecumenical council that um, if we're going to say the first six matter, but the seventh, we can just throw out entirely. I think, no, I think there's merit to it to some degree. And that's ultimately where I'm going to fall. I'm going to fall not necessarily Lutheran, not necessarily reformed, probably more evangelical where you, you can have artwork and depictions, but I wouldn't put them in worship services because that is a little bit too close to home. Um, I think you can have depictions in books and in films, especially for educational purposes. And that seems to be the one constant in all this debate is that um, even those who are against images and icons in worship seem to be okay with putting depictions outside of that context. And that's kind of where I'm falling. Even like if you look at the weird um, blind spot, if you will, of the reformers that I noted in the last episode where they have depictions of Jesus on their Bibles, I think that's significant. Um, R.C. Sproul argues that Calvin and his institutes um, wasn't against art wholesale, but that he was adamantly against superstitious reverence of art in churches. And again, that's where I would fall. I think within the medieval church, it was completely appropriate to get rid of that because that was a major stumbling block at that point in time. Now, whenever we talk about the Bible being spread before it is put into a book where everyone could read it, aside from debates on literacy, you're talking about people spreading the story word of mouth. They're, they're giving off pictures of what Jesus are doing, and they're imagining these things in their mind. Same thing as whenever we read the Bible. Now, I don't know how you, how you can read the Bible and not picture Jesus. And that goes into one of my critiques of the Westminster Larger Catechism, uh, question 109, what are the sins forbidden in the second commandment? And they essentially say that you can't make any images of any of the three persons of the Trinity, um, either on, on paper or essentially or in your mind. Let me see if I can find the actual quote just for the sake of making sure I get that right. And in fact, in this question, it actually mentions the regulative principle of worship, which becomes ironic a little bit when it comes to baptism, but I digress for the sake of staying on course. So it forbids the making any representation of God of all or any of the three persons, either inwardly in our mind or outwardly in any kind of image or likeness of any creature whatsoever. Now, the problem with this is that it's not biblical. Um, one, one reformed um, teacher, I can't remember who, I just put the quote for some reason, didn't quote him, says, 
God gave us verbal communication, not pictorial communication. In essence, he was arguing the word is our uh, communication, not pictures. Therefore, we don't need pictures. But that's that's a very shallow view of what written communication does. Whenever you read the Psalms and it gives you imagery, it's imagery. You're supposed to you're supposed to connect it to something. God is a shield means something because we know what a shield looks like and what a shield does. Um, and so whenever you're talking about you can't make any representation um, of any of the three persons, but the Bible gives you the Lion of Judah, the Lamb that was slain, the Holy Spirit descended as a dove. It's giving you imagery. Now you can say that these aren't trying to depict any of the persons of the Trinity, but it's imagery that's used for the three persons of the Trinity. If I draw a dove intending to draw an image, so to speak, of the Holy Spirit, that's a biblical image. The Holy Spirit descending as a dove or fire or water that you read in the Old Testament or the New Testament. Or if we draw a lamb, and very often you'll see a lamb and a cross together, you know what that's depicting. It's depicting the lamb who was slain. It's a depiction. It's using imagery from the Bible. And so I'm not really sure how you can get away with that. Um, Biblically, whenever the Bible, yes, it's given to us in written form, but it elicits imagery. That's a lot of the Bible elicits imagery. You know, even, you know, put put on the armor of God. He gives you imagery for these spiritual realities. That's that's one of the things. Or you start talking about, well, that, that's a whole different rabbit hole. Communion uh, and the Reformed tradition say, well, you know, the, the, the cup and the bread are instituted by God as images of Christ. Well, I mean, what about all the other ones? Especially whenever we open up in Revelation and it gives a description of Jesus coming back on a horse. And it it does give a more vivid description of what he would look like. Are we not supposed to imagine that in our minds in any shape or form? So, so here's where I'm kind of going with this. I don't think this is biblical in the way that it tries to avoid idolatry. I think it's, it's mainline intention is true. We should avoid idolatry, but I don't think it's biblical in how it's putting forward the parameters to not commit idolatry. Telling someone not to inwardly picture anything in their mind that represents Jesus or the Holy Spirit whenever the Bible gives you images to put in your mind. And whenever you think about the people who are orally passing down these stories to one another until they were able to all read or had the printing press, however far you want to go, because there was different periods in time where different individuals didn't have access. You can go into all that. There were always and consistently times where images were used for the sake of educating those who couldn't read. Um, because we are people who live, breathe, and move in the world. We, we just don't sit there and look at these words and just see them only as words. There, there's more to them. There's something behind the words. They're conveying pictures and images of realities in, in the world. It's, it's that simple, I think. Now, whenever it comes to, there's a lot more nuance, right? So, so there's some people who think that um, other things can be depicted and other things can't. Simple as that. For example, uh, the burning bush, where God revealed himself in the, in the bush to Moses. Some would say that that's technically an image of God. And some would say, no, that, that one doesn't count. And so it becomes this weird, deeper discussion that almost becomes a conviction. So, so if you're looking at these images and for some reason it makes you worship the image as the deity or as the mediator of the deity, if you're looking at an image of Christ and you think that it's actually the means by which you are mediated to Christ, then yeah, there's a problem there. You're treating it as deity when it's not. Um, I don't think that's how most people treat it. And I really struggle with the concept of 
reading the text about Jesus and what he's doing and not imagining what is happening, like not having the pictures that are being put forward in scripture in my mind. And so whenever I'm thinking through this particular confession or this charge by this tradition, all I'm thinking is that this has become a weird legalism where there's a commandment attached to the Bible that isn't in the Bible. It's not a biblical commandment. I, I don't, I have a hard time thinking that imagery was placed in the Bible for us not to imagine. Um, and so that's, that's where I land in that regard. Now, whenever it gets to the discussion of, well, whenever you see an image of Jesus, that's the image in your mind whenever you're worshiping Jesus. Therefore, you're worshiping this false Jesus. I think that goes far into the weeds because that boils down to, well, what's your theology of Jesus? Because ultimately what Jesus looked like physically is inconsequential, right? Because if you have proper theology of who Jesus is and what he was doing and what he, what he is doing, then it doesn't really particularly matter as the second Adam who represents all humanity anyway. The incarnation is a beautiful thing. It's a beautiful reality. It's an all-inspiring reality. But really, it's ultimately the theology behind your Jesus that matters more than how he's depicted in his human form. And that's, that's where I land on that. So I think that ultimately, if, if images cause you to stumble and worship the image, if you see a picture of Jesus and you can't help but worship that picture of Jesus, as if the picture was Jesus himself, then yeah, you shouldn't be around pictures of Jesus. I don't think that's the case from the majority of people. I think, I think ultimately, the, the reformers were trying to push back against what was very superstitious in regards to statues or images and it was appropriate for that time. I'm not convinced that it's necessarily biblical or necessary now, especially with how we view pictures, artistic representations, even idols now. I mean, that's one of the reasons why we spiritualized idols. Like we, we talk about how anything can be an idol, right? Money can be an idol, right? Where we worship something, we devote our lives to something. And we've done that because ultimately it's true that you can make things gods, controllers of your lives, but also because the original idea of an idol this block of wood that was deity doesn't really exist in our time anymore. So we've taken the principle for application and applied it to our day, but in, in its original form, it's not the same, right? So there's something to be said about that, about what was being dealt with historically. And then, and that's kind of where I've landed. And so I've ultimately found myself in a place where I like Christian art that is good and rich and theological, right? Um, you can talk about things like, Oh, I don't know, The Passion of the Christ. That's a very powerful movie. Yeah, it has flaws. You can see some Catholic leanings in it because of the director. But ultimately, that movie is a powerful picture of the passion. It, it really is. And it really does bring that reality to, to you in a format, and a medium that is applicable in our time. Back then, it was oral tradition. It can still be oral tradition today, but we also have different mediums of communication and it's, so long as it's faithful to scripture, it seems fine. And those times when it wasn't fine was whenever there was something wrong theologically. It was never the actual person, or, you know, what the person looked like that was the problem. It was the theology behind it. You talk about, oh man, what's that one movie? It's called um, Killing Jesus, put out by Bill O'Reilly. You want to talk about heresy. Man, just heresy for days. Nothing wrong with the actor who played Jesus. It was everything behind it, all the theology behind it, all the all the representation behind it. And so I do think that there's more weight behind uh, modern media in terms of the theology behind something rather than just the physical image. Now, there are some cases where the physical images are just as damaging. Uh, for example, the shack. 
man, you want to talk about heresy theologically and then heresy visually, there's the shack. So I think there's a place for discussion on all this, but ultimately it's the theology behind, you know, the, the image that we're looking at that matters most of all. And even the people who are against images, that's what they're concerned about. They're concerned about not having the deity of Christ represented in these pictures of the incarnation. Well, that's a theological issue, but it doesn't change the reality of Jesus Christ in the flesh, right? That's that's kind of where I've went. So I think our art is appropriate. I'm still weary about art within the sanctuary where worship is actually occurring. I think I think if you... I know that uh, R.C. Sproul, apparently St. Andrews, has a bunch of art. I've never been there, never been to Florida, so wouldn't know. But ultimately, I'm a little bit weary about representations in, you know, in the sanctuary. But I think that art is fine, and I really enjoy good art. Um, and that's, I kind of wish there was more that was more thoughtful and more rich and more deep. Um Honestly, it almost seems like all the theologically inclined people step back from anything that was entertainment-based, and that leaves us with this big pool of God's Not Dead 17 or whatever one they're on. Um, sorry, I I get really critical about Christian media, if I'm honest. But, but ultimately, it's true. I mean, you look at the theologically inclined, they tend to shy away from modern music. They tend to shy away from art, for obvious reasons. They tend to shy away from, from film for the same reasons. I mean, except from like modern adaptations of like uh, John Bunyan's work, right? Um, and some things like that here and there. For the most part, we've been really lacking and there's not many rich, you know, big depictions. Yeah, there, there's some really good and solid accounts that I've seen online that I just I just adore. They do great work. But for the most part, in terms of mainstream, there, there's not much. And it's kind of a shame, in my opinion. But there's a lot more that can be said. I mean, you could talk about the the different media tools that have been used for evangelism or for educating. And uh, that's just kind of where I land. And so I, I would say I, I lean more with the Lutherans and the Seventh Ecumenical Council. But obviously I drift from them here and there um, on the details of veneration and how I view the icons in regards to worship and veneration of the saints. I think those things are wrong. So that's that's where I land Hot take. I think art is okay. I think we need better art. I think we need theologically inclined individuals writing music and making art and movies to replace stuff like The Shack and Killing Jesus because, oh boy, tell you what. Anyway, that's all I have for this two-parter. Please uh, check out the resources at the bottom of uh, the description of this episode and do some more digging. Really do some digging if you end up disagreeing with me, that's that's okay. In fact, uh, if you end up disagreeing with me, send me an email and tell me why. I'd love to hear why. And uh, maybe I'll do a follow-up Q&A for this particular episode. So if you have any questions, email me uh, questions about this episode with the subject line being, I don't know, images or icon, whatever you want to call it. And we can do a follow-up of things I may have not covered because it was hard, kind of hard to organize for me. I had a hard time organizing this one. So that's it. God bless you all. And until next time, have a great weekend. Christ.